The great poet John Donne once sermoned, no man is an island. Today's homo sapien, however, prefers the life of a peninsula, severed from our fellow man, save but for the slenderest strip of real estate we call sanity. And there are signs everywhere of erosion. In the dark still moments of the night or before the rays of light tap us on the shoulder in the early morning, we might welcome an untethering from mankind with the hopes of stealing sweet respite from the constant chatter of zeros and ones sent to us by zeros and ones. But what if we actually received our wish? What if we were placed in complete solitude, left with little more than the faint recollection of a past with no future? In this week's episode, we learn that man was not built for solitude. However, one does not always have a choice in the twilight zone. Do you remember how your day started? If you said, I woke up, you're probably right. But what if your first memory wasn't actually waking up? What if your first real moment of consciousness was when you were standing in front of the sink in the bathroom with a toothbrush in your hand and your mouth covered in minty fresh paste? Would you react at all? Would you have a moment where you thought, how did I get here? You might think, well, before I've had my coffee, I'm not sure I'm even alive. Fair enough, I'm in that group who needs a bit of a caffeine jolt to get going in the morning. But that's not really what I'm talking about here. I mean, what if your first moment of conscious existence could not be traced back to your having woken up? For Mike Ferris, our leading man in this inaugural episode, this pilot episode of The Twilight Zone, this is the case. His first memory is simply walking down a road. He doesn't know where he is, and he doesn't even know who he is. He has been thrown into existence. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Ferris finds himself in a town in anywhere USA. All he wants is a little food and a little company. It isn't long before Mr. Ferris realizes that something is terribly wrong. There are signs of people everywhere, but no one to be found. And he can't throw off this nagging feeling like someone is watching him. When you put all of this in a pan and add some heat, you don't get stir-fry, you get stir-crazy. And by the end of the episode, we are reminded of the importance of human companionship. Where Is Everybody is directed by Robert Stevens, teleplay by Rod Serling, original, original music score by Bernard Herrmann, starring Earl Holloman as Mike Ferris. And the first telecast is October 2nd, 1959. According to Martin Graham's Jr.'s The Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to a television classic, Serling got the idea for the episode when he was, quote, walking through an empty village set at the back lot of a movie studio. When I read that quotation in the book, it immediately reminded me that the people who are most creative are often the ones who are the most open to the potentials of any given situation. According to Mark Scott Zickrey's The Twilight Zone Companion, Serling originally opened The Twilight Zone with, There is a sixth dimension. But this was one too many dimensions for CBS program executive Bill Self, who challenged Serling, asking, Rod, what is the fifth one? When neither man could materialize a fifth dimension on the spot, it was decided to rewrite the opening as, There is a fifth dimension. Okay, let's get into my initial thoughts on the episode. Well, my initial thoughts are positive. But I also think that it's 
kind of an episode that I'll simply call a grower. Hey, 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 family friendly, keep the giggles to a minimum. What I mean is that there are certain episodes in the Twilight Zone that if you see them prior to, let's say, 30-ish, they don't quite hit home. But the more we grow and mature, the more they gain a kind of impact. When you're young, I think you might see this episode and think, it's boring. I mean, after all, nothing really happens, per se. But it's in that nothingness that those of us who are a bit older can find a kind of human horror. I particularly enjoy the ending of the episode when Ferris asks the doctor what happened to him, and the doctor tells him basically that we can supply all kinds of reading materials, oxygen, food, but we can't simulate the basic need for human companionship. Today, it seems like we are moving ever more closer to a time when robots will provide us with a push-of-a-button companion. I won't spoil it for those of you who have not seen it yet, but there is a fantastic episode of The Twilight Zone that really explores this theme, along with how we weigh crimes and punishments. I suppose I'm a bit of a romantic, and I'm sure I'll say it a few times over the course of this show, so why not start now with the first real episode? I'm very much worried about a future where humans look to robots for companionship. I know it might seem like a panacea, or a way to push back against loneliness, something we're going to speak about again in, in just a minute. But I'm not 100% sure that our mushy human brains can actually handle such a relationship, or at least not on a mass level. But that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. All right, let's get into our questions. Question one. If Mike Ferris had another human being with him, would it really make his situation any better? Ferris is battling a lot of forces in this episode, but at the forefront is this growing sense of isolation. Throughout the episode, he desperately wants another human being with him to share in the ridiculousness of the situation. This is something that comes rather naturally to us as humans. Have you ever seen a disgruntled patron at a store who isn't getting their way? What do they eventually start to do? Yeah, they kind of look around for anyone who will agree with them, for anyone who will recognize their plight and share in their moment of public suffering. Whether we like to admit it or not, we draw great strength from each other, which is what makes our current situation in the world all the more frightening. In 2023, the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek H. Murthy, issued an advisory, an official public statement, discussing an epidemic of loneliness across the United States. Now, to be fair, I think this loneliness extends beyond the United States. So for my international, you know, listeners, you're not alone. Or, no, no, wait, you are alone. Wait, I don't know what the polite thing is to say here. Let's just keep listening together. This epidemic of loneliness seems to even transcend our ideas of Eastern and Western hemispheres. I'm told by my international students that it seems to be pretty much all over the place. The advisory has some stark statistics and concerning observations. What I'm about to read is a rather lengthy quote, but I think it serves an important purpose. The lack of social connection poses a significant risk for individual health and longevity. Loneliness and social isolation increase the risk for premature death by 26 and 29% respectively. More broadly, lacking social connection can increase the risk for premature death as much as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. In addition, 
Poor or insufficient social connection is associated with increased risk of disease, including a 29% increased risk of heart disease and a 32% increased risk of stroke. Furthermore, it is associated with increased risk for anxiety, depression, and dementia. End quote. I'm going to speak to the anxiety and depression part here a bit. There are different types of loneliness in the world. If we lose a spouse, we can certainly feel lonely. But that's not the same thing as being with a spouse or being with a bunch of people and feeling lonely. I think both of those scenarios can produce varying levels of depression. But death is something that we have dealt with since the beginning of life. And as horrible as it is, we have ways that we can deal with it that have been passed down to us through generations. Grieving, relying on friends and loved ones, and even reading and writing. But the kind of loneliness that comes from being with someone or with people seems to me to be a much more nuanced phenomenon and in some ways even more difficult than losing someone. And I think it's something that we are facing in kind of our modern civilization today. What makes Where Is Everybody such an interesting episode is the fact that there are signs of life all around him. Food, sounds, Things that showcase all of the ways we live as a community. If he were left on a planet where there were no other human beings, you know, one could possibly train for such a situation and practice long periods of isolation. But if you're getting teased by the prospects of social interaction, I can understand how a man might lose his mind eventually. Therefore, there's a part of me that always wonders, what exactly are they testing here with this simulation? Mike Ferris's eventual breakdown is completely understandable, and I could see a fair share of people falling into the same patterns of depression and hopelessness and anxiety, perhaps even myself, given enough time. Ferris's reaction in this situation to me reads as normal. I would be far more concerned about someone who embraces the solitude and cares nothing for the signs of humanity although that would be the ideal individual for this particular task. Let's jump into our second question. How does consciousness, his awareness of himself, add to Ferris's terror? When Ferris is talking to the female mannequin, he tells her, When I woke up this morning, well, I didn't exactly wake up. I just found myself out on that road, walking. In that moment, he experiences a kind of Heideggerian horror, a clarity of his thrownness into existence. But it's worse because he can't sufficiently match the context with his existence, so he's trapped in a state of angst. It makes me wonder how much easier this whole experiment would be if they had simply made Mike wake up first in this simulated world. It might have led to a different outcome. Now, you've probably heard the phrase existential horror or existential angst before. This episode is probably one of the best examples of this concept that you might ever come across. The philosopher Heidegger was interested in the state of being and how we understand being. What he famously uncovered is that we are, for all intents and purposes, thrown into a state of being. As in, we have no say in where we are born or in the circumstances in which we exist. We are merely thrown into life, and we can't simply transcend the context of our being. It's something that will always be a part of us. Therefore, according to Heidegger, 
it's important for us to understand the relationship between our existence, the context of our existence, and if that's not enough, the fact that we will eventually die and our existence will end. Whenever I talk philosophy with my students, I always try to remind them to think about what is useful in it. What parts of it make you a better version of yourself? Don't be afraid to throw away the rest. Now, I want to be clear. It's not that I'm telling them to not value the other information. However, when you're young, and sometimes even when you're older, it can be difficult to compartmentalize information. The important thing is for young adults to try and figure out who they want to be. What kind of individual do they want to bring out into the world? I've had young college students come into my office and claim that they're nihilists. And after we lay out what nihilism actually is, the majority of those students just kind of smile and say, okay, maybe I'm not a nihilist. But I do have some who continue to claim that they are. That's all that I mean by don't be afraid to throw aside the information that leads you away from being the person that you want to be. That has to be the ultimate goal. Philosophy has to serve humanity and serve in some sense, our understanding of ourselves, and why wouldn't we shoot for being the best version of ourselves that we want to be? Now, to be fair, I don't really grapple with Heidegger on a routine basis, but I would like to amplify and extend his idea of thrownness a bit and connect it to a problem that I see in today's society all over the place. I think we tend to suffer today from a hyperconscious awareness of being. What does that gobbledygook mean? Well, we're too much aware of our existence, too much aware of time moving, of cells dying, of days diminishing. This can create a kind of existential horror for people. And I do think we have some ways that we can push back against this horror, although there is no 100% cure. The answer to me is always mindfulness. Time is not wasting away. You have it, and you choose what you want to do with it while it's available to you. And when you have a moment of pure clarity to realize how special it truly is for you to be both alive and aware that you're alive, that is when you need to capitalize on it by doing something beautifully human. Seek out something that moves you or seek out something that moves someone you love. I'll often tell my students, I have no idea how to make myself happy. That's the truth. When I'm feeling my worst, I usually try to make someone else feel better. My wife knows this. I'll buy her flowers sometimes and she'll say, thanks. She's always incredibly grateful for the thought. But she also knows me well enough to sometimes ask, are you feeling all right? That, ladies and gentlemen, is the beauty of intimacy. So be mindful and be connected. Recognize the importance of maintaining contact with those you love and those who love you. Now, just to tie this all back to our episode, as Ferris's feeling of being watched continues to grow, so does his conscious awareness of his being. When he can't find anyone else to share in his experience, he realizes that he's it. He's the only animated object of flesh that can pull a subjective glare from outside eyes. And so, although the feeling of being watched connects with all of the doctors and servicemen who are, you know, watching him in the simulation, there is also this sense that there is nowhere to hide, no other entities in the simulation to pull focus away from him. And that adds to the horror of the situation. Okay, so what were your moments of awe? 
the moments that moved you or prompted you to think more deeply about life. Right off the bat, I'm going to just mention the conversation again with the female mannequin. It made me think about various scenes from other movies and TV shows where people start to talk to inanimate objects. The two that always come to my mind are Will Smith in I Am Legend, right, where he's talking to mannequins as well. And of course, can you guess? A certain volleyball named Wilson from a movie about a man who is literally stranded on an island? Castaway with Tom Hanks. Now look, I can openly say that if I thought I was stranded somewhere with little hope of being rescued, I would absolutely start talking to objects like right away as a method of maintaining my sanity. I'm talking about within like the first hour, I'd be like, hey rock, what's going on? Palm tree, keep swaying. Look, that's maybe that's just me. I, I don't particularly think that's all that crazy. What do you think, Hewlett Packard? There's also this wonderfully eerie moment at the 644 mark, where it's so quiet and Ferris is just looking around the town, and he finally realizes, I'm in trouble. I was fortunate enough to go to the Massachusetts Museum of Modern Art, where they had an exhibit that was a completely dead soundstage, and it was spooky. If you just sit still for a moment where you are, you might think that, well, that's silence, right? But there's silence, and then there's the complete absence of sound. It's weird. If you ever get the chance to check that out, I highly recommend it. Another thing that kind of moved me in a rather eerie way is when he gets trapped momentarily in the phone booth. And then again, later on, when Ferris is in the police station and the jail cell door almost closes on him. Oh my God, could you imagine? Could you imagine getting trapped within a trap? At least before you have the, the freedom to explore the nothingness, right? To utilize the space. But to further constrict your ability to feed your mind with new information, that's just an absolute death sentence for me. I'm, I'm done. I'm tapping out. That's it. Finally, that evolutionary feeling that something is watching us. It's like a remnant of the days when we were very much aware that we are prey as much as predators. At the end, when Ferris just keeps screaming that someone is like watching me kind of thing, you can't help but feel a bit startled because I think most of us have felt that at least once in our lives, and it can be quite unnerving. I think I'll just leave those there as my moments, but make sure to tell me yours as well. Now, in terms of the ranking for the episode, remember, we're doing kind of tiers. So you've got upper tier, middle tier, lower tier, but we've got grades in between those as well. Upper, upper tier, upper, middle tier, upper, lower tier. For this episode, I would actually rank it as middle, upper tier, just outside of the upper, lower tier, I think. It's an incredibly strong episode, and I'm not sure you could have asked for you know, much better in terms of a pilot episode for a show as well. The acting is great. The anxiety is wonderful. It's so palpable, you know, in many ways. And so I, I of course, really enjoy this episode a lot. I absolutely do. It just, just falls out of the upper tier for me. But again, I'll be curious to see what you think. Well, you can always go to the website, thekeyofimagination.com. If you click on this episode, you'll see the Google form there where you can kind of give your thoughts and give your ranking as well. And I absolutely encourage you to do so because I'm actually quite interested to see 
how many people did put it in that upper tier. I'm, I'm not sure there would be many people who'd put it in the lower tier, honestly, but in the upper tier, I am curious to see if there were uh, that many people who did that. Our next episode is one for the angels. And I've got your three questions for you here. But keep in mind, again, spoilers sometimes get added into the questions by accident. So if you need to come back to them, go ahead and watch the episode and then come back to get the questions or you can go to the website to see the questions as well. Question one, do you think the angel of death always knows what's going to happen in the end? In other words, is he simply pantomiming this whole thing for the benefit of Bookman? Question two. Does Bookman's reaction to death, either the concept or the character, represent how most people think about it? Or does he have kind of a unique view here? And finally, what are your moments of awe for the episode? What moves you emotionally or prompts you to think more deeply? Now, I've got the skeletal structure for the website up and running. It's not completely finished. That might take some time to tweak, you know, based on the needs of the show and some of the feedback that I get from you as well. However, you can head over to thekeyofimagination.com and continue our conversation. You can navigate to the Where Is Everybody episode and give your ranking, which I'm quite curious about, as I mentioned before. You'll also find contact information for getting in touch with me. Feel free to email me your thoughts or send an audio or video clip of roughly no more than five minutes to keyofimaginationshow at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, I ask that you please take a moment and do one of the following to help build our community. Rate the show, review the podcast, leave comments, thumbs up, all of the usual algorithmic gymnastics. That will help get the show in front of more people and help us build our community of Twilight Zone fans. However, even if you do none of that and absolutely hate it every minute of this, I would still like to thank you for spending some time with me. Until next time, remember all doors are open to those who possess the key of imagination.